Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week's guest on the podcast is Richard Wilson, sports writer for the Herald newspaper of Glasgow. We are discussing his book, Inside the Divide, One City, Two Teams, The Old Firm, published in 2012 by Canonsgate. The Old Firm is one of the most storied and most intense rivalries in all of sports. The two clubs of Glasgow, Rangers and Celtic, have dominated Scottish football since the 19th century, and their derby perennially determines which team takes the league title. But like many other great sports rivalries, the Old Firm was built on conflicts of class ethnicity, and religion. As Richard Wilson explains in his book and the interview, these historical divisions are subsiding, but the Rangers-Celtic rivalry remains fiercely contested. The primary marker today is allegiance to a club, and the fuel for animosity, as Richard bluntly states, is not religion, but alcohol. Catholics and Protestants do not curse each other across the street in contemporary Glasgow, but heated fans of Celtic and Rangers, typically after a morning of drink, will hurl sectarian slurs against their opponents during a match. Controversy and debate surround the old firm in most seasons. This year, the pressing issue has been the bankruptcy of Rangers and questions about the club's future. In the interview, Richard discusses the club's financial problems and what they mean for Celtic and for Scottish football as a whole. And he discusses why the rivalry is still important for Glasgow. Richard is a native son of the city, and like all Glaswegians, he grew up with the rivalry. So to start the interview, I asked him about his first trip to an old firm match. Well, that's a question now. It would probably have been probably early 90s. Um, I would have gone to uh, gone to one at Ibrooks. Um, I think it would have been a two-each game. I think it was a two-each game at Ibrooks. Um, they all kind of, they do have a bit of a tendency to merge into one after all. <laughs> we, have so, we have so many of them. So you've been a sports writer now in Scotland for the last decade or so. So what led you to to write a book about the uh, the Celtic Rangers rivalry? Um, well, I, I was in that a place in my career where um, the, the opportunity was there to write a book. So I've been thinking about a book for a wee while, um, and I'd initially kind of shied away from the old firm because obviously I'm, I'm writing about them all the time, um, working uh, with um, working with the clubs all the time, and, and it just it felt a little bit close. But then as I took a step back and thought, well, first book, 
the advice is always to write what you know and the more I started to think about maybe going back to the initial idea about the old firm was the right way to do it um, I mean having lived in Glasgow my whole life and having worked as a sports writer um, I think that gives you a kind of unique insight into the old firm um, but it definitely does you know, from childhood on if you're a Rangers fan or you're a Celtic fan the uh, the game just tends to it just tends to kind of fill your life you know you're constantly aware of when the next one is um, and it's, it's fascinating to see from a professional point of view having grown up sort of following it as a fan you know it's, it's, it's a fascinating fixture and so I just kind of thought well I've got some time so I'll, I'll immerse myself in that So I noticed in the book you and I can't remember if you revealed uh, which team you followed have you as the book has come out have you had any response from fans on one side or the other accusing you of, of bias? Uh, yes, yeah, so you, you get that with anything you do about the old firm. Um, I, mean, I've, I've, I could write two pieces in a week and be accused by both sides of being a, a, a fan of the other. I mean, that, that's just the nature of the, of the rivalry. Um, yeah, what I found with writing this book is um, there's so few books that address the old firm together. Uh, there's a vast sort of bank of literature about Celtic and a vast one about Rangers and there's only a handful, there's a historic, some historical books about the old firm but nothing really kind of contemporary um, and what I've found is that supporters are most comfortable when somebody is writing positive stuff about their team um, and negative stuff about the other team and they're sort of uncomfortable with the notion of, of somebody treating the two sides the same mm-hmm and saying you know, Rangers fans and Celtic fans are as good and as bad as each other. And there's a phrase that people use in Glasgow called equivalence. So I, I'm, you know, a Celtic magazine, for instance, did a, a review of the book recently and said, well, um, I, I like the review, I write like parts of it, but yeah, you know, there's, too, there's too much equivalence in it. And by that he means there's not enough uh, criticism of Rangers fans and, and too much criticism of Celtic fans, if, if you get my drift. So I've, I've found that writing a book about the old firm has generated that kind of response. So in the last two decades, Glasgow has had uh, a, a post-industrial revival. It is, it's one of the most visited cities in the UK. It's uh, celebrated for, for its culture, for its architecture. But I was somewhat surprised from the book that, that your view of, of your native city is not so rosy. Um. Well, I, I hope that doesn't come across in the book because that, that wouldn't be wholly fair. I think the fixture itself is unique and draws a lot of attention, um, good and bad. I would say that there are, the, the rivalry reflects some old attitudes that were in Glasgow, uh, that were prevalent in Glasgow a lot the sort of first half of the last century. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that they're not common now, uh, although plenty of people would argue against that, but I, I don't think they are. But I mean, the book was solely about uh, the game and what the game, the sort of extremes that the game is capable of. But um, I mean, a, a phrase I used the other day, which I think is most definitely relevant, is the safest place to be in Glasgow on an old firm day is at the match. Huh. Um, now, there are, there are areas of the city that you would avoid after the game, but to be frank, they are the areas of the city that you would avoid at the best of times anyway. Um, I mean, Glasgow is, like many big cities, has pockets of poverty and um, areas where there's low life expectancy and there's people don't work and there's areas that are deprived areas of the city that are just neck and neck with areas of affluence and wealth. And um, I don't think Glasgow is any different from any other big city in that way. 
Um, and the interesting thing about Rangers and Celtic is this is a rivalry where the, both sets of fans are drawn from exactly the same socio-economic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So both sets of fans have a full range of supporters from the corporates, well-dressed, well-educated, rich fans, right down to the, the you know the, the unemployed fans who can barely afford their ticket every week. But you know the, the club is part of their identity, so it's a part of their life. Um, and plenty of other football rivalries. You, See, you take River Plate and Boca, for example, or, or Istanbul Derby, where the clubs are, are um, you know, the, the, the clubs are separated by by class almost. You know, Boca are the rich club, and River Plate are the poor club, or you know, vice versa. I mean, it's not like that in Glasgow. But um, I hope it doesn't paint a bleak picture of Glasgow, because I wouldn't want it to do that. But the rivalry in the past has been capable of bleak moments, um, and I certainly think it would have been wrong to sort of suggest that the game. Is the, I mean, it is a great occasion, but it is capable of a darker edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, it would only have been right for the book to address both of those. The one point that did stand out, and this was in your uh, your final chapter, I believe, is that you did describe Glasgow as a tribal city. Mm-hmm. And you, you, so you would say that still applies? It, it applies up to a point, I would say. Um, there are still areas of not so much Glasgow now, but still areas of Glasgow and to a great extent areas of the West Central Scotland that are predominantly Catholic or predominantly Protestant still. Uh, and I would say that there are there are pubs in Glasgow that you know are Rangers pubs and pubs you know that are Celtic pubs. And schooling in the city is segregated to the extent that there are state schools uh, in, in Scotland that are uh, non-denominational and there are state schools that are Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there is an element of segregation right through the city. It's not as blunt as it used to be. Um, I mean, I, I quote a statistic in the book, for example, that mixed marriages are, have never been higher between Catholics and, and non-Catholics in, in, in Scotland. Um, I, you know, I don't think the old boundaries are there in a lot of aspects of society, but you do know parts of the city that are Rangers, parts of the city that are Celtic, the pubs, um, the schools, and people. It's very much a part of city life. You know, are you Rangers or are you Celtic? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the time, because of the, the, the religious aspect of it, often enough your name can give you away. You know, a certain surname, a certain obviously Catholic surname, uh, an obviously Protestant surname, and people will immediately make the assumption that your Rangers are Celtic. So that's what I mean by tribal. I don't mean that people behave within their tribes in a certain way, but it is very definitely a city where you're either blue or green. Your your Rangers are Celtic. You're, you know, that, that's the distinction that people expect. So something you note at the start of the book is that uh, the rest of Scotland has a somewhat ambiguous view of the old firm. Could you t- mm-hmm. could you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I go back to um, I go back to the point about the um, the old firm game. It's a it's an event in world football. I mean, I will go to these games and cover them uh, as a writer, and more often than not, there will always be at least one foreign journalist who's come to write about the game and to write about the occasion. Um, and it's it's one of the resonant fixtures in world football, and it is there's a there's a pageantry to it. There's the noise, the colour, the atmosphere, the tone. I mean, it's just, it's a wonderful sporting occasion, but it is capable of um, well, it's, it's capable of generating a, a kind of um, 
an aggression in the players. We've seen the game spilling over into heated moments and punch-ups and flare-ups and things like that. We know in the past that it's been capable of generating that amongst the fans. Uh, we know that some of the songs that have been sung reflect these kind of old sectarian attitudes. Um, Rangers fans singing about Fenians, Celtic fans singing about the IRA. It, you know, there's, there's also obviously a hostility to the rivalry that is... I think it's common with all sporting rivalries. Two sets of supporters will seek to antagonise each other. Uh, and that happens in all football rivalries, for example. And I think the thing about Rangers and Celtic is a lot of that rivalry is expressed in a sectarian language or uh, sectarian banners. And so I think Scotland, on the one hand, uh, Scottish society, likes the fact that we have this world-renowned football fixture and we love when we're obsessed with the game in this country it's our national sport we love the fact that we we gave it to so many other countries in the world we love the fact that we've got two of the biggest teams in the world on our doorstep but we are we, we remain troubled by aspects of that rivalry and so i think sometimes there is an ambivalence towards it rather than just a straight celebrating it or indeed abhorring it you know i think people have, have kind of fallen out into this way of well, it's there, and we know it's great, but we also know that there are parts of it that we don't like. So I think Scottish society in general has developed this ambivalence towards the game, and I think we've, we've come to forget, in some senses, just how big these two clubs are because of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the phrase you use, which I like, is uh, uh, for people outside of Glasgow, that, that the game is, is a guilty pleasure. I think that's true. I mean, I think, um, I think a, lot of, a lot of people want to watch it because it's a great occasion but don't want to feel as though by doing that they're condoning the the um, you know the anti-Irish Catholic or the anti-Scottish Protestant element amongst the two supporters but I think the other thing that's worth stressing and it's a conversation I have quite a lot is that sometimes and I include journalists and the media and everybody in this that we, we, we look at the two supports and we judge the two supports by the most vocal minority of them mm-hmm. so if you've got 50,000 Rangers fans 60,000 Celtic fans you almost uh, define them by the loudest group of them who will happen to be probably the most um, extreme mm-hmm. if you like so I, I do think sometimes we are capable of being a little bit unfair towards them but the game itself is uh, you know, I think I, I think a guilty pleasure is the right way to describe it because we enjoy it there are aspects of it that we, that we don't like mm-hmm. So you just noted that uh, uh, football fans in Scotland appreciate this this notion that that the old firm is an event in world football, uh, but at the same time you make the point in the book that a large part of the intensity of the old firm comes from the fact that Scotland is a small nation. It, it seems like this is a this is a heated rivalry in a small fishbowl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's one of the things that. You know, I- I draw parallels with other derby matches in world football. So if you take, for example, um, Arsenal-Tottenham, which is a local rivalry in London, or you take, um, up until these last couple of seasons, the Manchester derby, Mm -hmm. or the Manchester United-Liverpool, all these rivalries, either big local rivalries or big national rivalries, but there's plenty of other rivalries ongoing in those countries. the two teams may not necessarily always be challenging for the title. You know, all of these factors. The thing about Scotland is that Rangers and Celtic just absolutely dominate football in this country. So they're always playing each other for the title. Always, they, even though they don't play each other every week, they are competing with each other every week, which kind of builds this intensity. Um, 
if you, if you take it, if you strip it right back to the, the Catholic Protestant thing as well. Some, I mean, a lot of other non-old firm fans don't like the old firm because they dominate everything. But there is a, there's a large percentage of non-old firm fans in Scotland will still have a preference for one or the other mm-hmm. when they play each other. Um, so I think there's all of these elements build up into it. But I think the intensity comes from yep, Scotland being small, but no other clubs being on a par with them, no other clubs competing with them. And so it's not just a local Glasgow rivalry. It's a rivalry that includes all the trophies, um, all the league titles, everything. They compete for everything, just the two of them. And so I think that builds the intensity of it. So if, if, if when Celtic lost the, uh, the first old firm game of this season, people were immediately asking, well, is that the league over? I mean, that's absurd. It was September or whenever it was. But that's the whole point. Everything is framed against each other. And I think that feeds into the intensity of the rivalry. So let's turn to the book and uh, and to the game. And uh, your book takes a, a unique approach to presenting a, a single derby match. And so I'll ask you how you structured the book and, and what your aim was in structuring it in that way. Well, I wanted to well, I wanted to do something that hadn't been done before. Um, I think that's always a, a good starting off point. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to wanted to explore the game from different points of view. Um, and I just wanted to... I wanted it to be more than just a book. About the, or I wanted it to appeal to more people than just old firm fans. I wanted it to be a book that a football fan could pick up. And even although they might not be a Rangers fan or a Celtic fan or indeed even have any great knowledge of them, um, they would be able to, to read it and sort of see aspects of their own relationship with the game. Um, and their own team and, and relationships that their team might have with other teams in it. So I thought the best way to do that was to almost to split it into its constituent parts, which is the different points of view of the game. And then when you start to do that with Rangers and Celtic, it needs to be a bit more than the players, the coaching staff, the referee, the fans, because the game is well, it's a policing event in Scotland, um, it's it's a it's an event for all the emergency services, and leave is cancelled for hospital staff. I mean, these are just the realities of it. So the book then had to take in some of these aspects as well. Um, so I, I suppose in some ways it was an an authorly conceit to do it that way, but I just felt it was something that hadn't been done before, and was a chance to explore the game from different points of view. Um, and I, I, there were times when I I I. I, I Got, I got my book deal and then went to do the first Oak Firm game that followed that. And it was a relatively tame one all draw and a couple of people reviews and things like that. So we didn't pick a great game. <laughs> um, but of course, you can't, just, you can't just wait for the next big match to come along. You, you know, you've got to get, get going with it. And I kind of felt, well, it was a relatively tame match, but it was one each, so there was a decent balance to it. And there was a narrative to the story and it, was, you know, it, it, it fitted in some ways. Uh, and then in the writing of the book, things were happening the following season, and again this season, the, the book's out, um, and I was able to bring all of those elements into it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, you know, I, I, I think if I, if I look back now on the book compared to the um, the proposal that I wrote for the publishers, I see all the compromises that I made to go from uh, getting the deal, writing the book, to getting it out. Mm-hmm. And I have plenty of colleagues who are writing books and have been writing them for several years. And I, 
uh, I made compromises along the way. I didn't get to speak to all the people that I wanted to speak to, or some people wouldn't speak to me because they were still active in the game, all these kind of things. I think there came a point where I just had to go for it. Um, and I think the structure maybe didn't necessarily lend itself to that. But uh, I mean, overall, I, I think most people have, have, have kind of quite liked taking the one game and looking at it from different points of view. I think that's. Um, I think that's an interesting way to do it. Yeah, I appreciate that. And in fact, one thing I was asking in terms of just the practical side of it, so so this was one match in in January 2010. So were you just running all over the grounds for that <laughs> for that entire day? <laughs> well, I, I teed up some of the some of the fans and, and the steward interviews um, from from beforehand. Uh, I was able to do the the, the, the police stuff and, the, and well, the referee wouldn't speak to me afterwards, so I, I did something for that afterwards. But um, you know the, the media side of it was fairly straightforward because um, got footage of the game and spoke to the commentator and you know I was there and you know spoke to my colleagues so it wasn't actually as difficult as as you might think I mean some of the stuff towards the end of the book the emergency services chapter a lot of that is based on speaking to people who have worked the games but not necessarily that particular game because it was actually that was quite a it was quite a flat aftermath to that one because um, that, that, I think that that was the one danger and the one but the way I did it and one thing I was always aware of was that if you pick one game and mm-hmm. completely stick to that structure then you're not going to get a full you know, a full idea of what the game is capable of so that's why it was very clear as I was writing it and particularly the, the introduction to say that it was a structure but allowing me to then sort of go off in different directions and bring other things into it uh, or else I would have been running about for 24 hours <laughs> like a bit of a loony so let's start with your chapter on the players. And uh, one theme that comes up in this chapter, which is expressed by players who had spent seasons in other leagues, is that the old firm does surpass all other derbies in intensity. And, and why is that, according to the players? Um, I think it's. I think it comes back to again the the, the idea that there, there are no other big games in Scottish football. <laughs> Um, and if you play in England or Italy or France or Germany or Holland or anywhere like that, the chances are that there's more than one big match on, the, mm-hmm. on your your calendar. Um, I mean, Rangers Aberdeen is quite a big game. Celtic Hearts is quite a big game, but there's nothing to compare with the Old Firm game. So you're immediately aware that this that this is an event, even if you didn't know about it before you came. I mean, when a player signs for Rangers or Celtic from abroad. Almost one of the first things that are asked at the press conference when we meet them for the first time is, what do you know about the Old Firm game? So you think about the moment they've arrived, they're doing their first press conference, it's almost the first question that they're getting, what do you know about this game? So it's already there. Um, The build-up for the game lasts at least a good couple of weeks. Um, The players in the dressing room will be impressing upon the new guys the importance of this game and what it means to the club and supporters. Um, Glasgow's not a big city um, most of the players live um, in the suburbs around the, where the training grounds are and things like that but you're never far away from the centre of Glasgow you're never far away from a Glads region and you've always got one on your shoulder who's got an opinion about football mm-hmm. so there's no escaping the, the, the meaning of the game so you've got all of that feeding into just the build up of the match um, and then the, the occasion itself I mean it's just I mean, people talk about noise at a sporting event, um, but referees will tell you that they, they cannot communicate with the linesman either side of them on, on the touchline because it's too noisy. Players can't communicate with each other because it's too noisy. 
Um, so I think there's a, just a, there's a kind of visceral, physical sense of this being an occasion mm-hmm. that um, they would not have encountered before. Um, but I mean, I, I suppose that, you know, there are other games where there's lots of things have happened, you know, Barcelona, Real Madrid. But the other big thing about British football is the culture of away fans travelling to games. You don't get that in the continent so much. Um, and then in England, I come back to that idea that you know, Manchester United will play four or five big games uh, a season home and away uh, against different teams. Here, it's constantly the same teams, constantly the same players you're coming up against four times a season. Mm-hmm. I just think all of that feeds into this idea that it's, it's, it's a unique atmosphere. So something else that the players you interviewed uh, describe, and, and this is repeated by other people involved with the game, is that the play on the field is really incidental to the event. And in fact, on the back cover of the book, you have a quote from Sir Alex Ferguson, who had played for Rangers, saying that the match would start and the, and the fans didn't even notice. Mm-hmm. Fans are there. Fans have interacted with each other to an extent. I mean, that, that's, that's part of it. Um, the fans will will obviously be in greater number and, and make the, the greater noise as the game starts. But then that's almost a kind of a, you know, a, a provocation to the other fans to get going with their noise. And, and you know, it's a sort of constant, um, you know, a constant to and froing between the two sets of supporters. Um, but unlike other matches where you might get a, you might get that surge of, 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 of atmosphere at the start of the game and then people go in to watch it and then react to what's happening in the game, in the old firm game, the, the kind of noise and the, you know, all the chanting and everything will just carry on regardless of what's happening on the field. Um, but obviously if something, if, if there's a goal, there's a foul, or something happens on the pitch, the fans will respond to that again. But the noise seldom dips. Um, you know, it seldom takes a pause. To sort of, you, don't, you never get the idea that anybody's really sitting down and mm-hmm. contemplating what's happening in front of them. You know, that they're, they're, they're immersed in the occasion. So I have to say, I'm a, I'm a former referee of various sports, so my favorite chapter was, was your chapter on referees. <laughs> and, uh, and in my reading, I thought this chapter really most clearly presented the, the intensity of the Derby in terms of showing the pressure of the match, the anxiety surrounding the match, uh, the abuse that the, referees, that the referees suffer. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, to me, it always seems like the, the loneliest place to be. Mm-hmm be a referee in the midst of that game. I mean, I think when the clear thing that came across from it, uh, from that chapter, is the awareness that the referees have of what they're trying to control and the volatility of the game um, and that they have to be aware of everything that's going on around them. But I, I love that sense that um, if they make a big decision in the game, there's almost an immediate sort of self-doubt and they know that it's been replayed countless times already on television mm-hmm. they know that the judgments are being made um, and they're just thinking have I made the right call, have I made the right call but also knowing that they can't let that affect them so uh, some referees would like to go in at half time and you know, get a text from a friend or whatever and to be told, that, obviously they want to be told that they got it right uh, but there's also the danger that they're told that they get it wrong and so do they, do they find out or if they find out they've got it wrong do they, are they then tempted to sort of equalise that decision and later and say all of that's going on um, and you know, I think supporters always perceive in the match officials a bias against their team I mean that's just that you'll know if you've been a referee you'll know that mm-hmm. supporters just view every decision through their own bias um, and one of the things that writing the book made me think a lot of um, 
we maybe talk about this in the media chapter, is um, one of the first things that we'll do after a game, if there's been a controversial decision in it, is that will become the narrative of the post-match stuff. So we will immediately be asking about that decision, asking everybody involved, what did you think about that? Because to us in the media, that's a story. Uh, and I, I do think now that we, we're probably unfair on the referees for that for that reason because we pinpoint those mistakes and they become the talking point for weeks after. Mm-hmm. Um, but it takes a very it takes a very strong individual to to manage these games um, as much as anything because there's so much going on mm-hmm. and you have to be decisive and you have to not be swayed by everything that's going on around you. Um, and there's very few referees that, um, that are able to cope with that, I think. And it was interesting that Hugh Dallas, the, the referee I spoke to for the game, talked about Pierre Luigi Colino, one of the famous referees, probably the most famous referee of his generation, saying that he envied him. You know, this is a guy that refereed World Cup finals and massive matches all over the continent. Um, and I think that says it all about the experience that somebody who's operated at the top level mm-hmm. of still wanted to experience that game and I love the, the expression that Hugh used about watching a, an Istanbul derby and um, going in to see the referee afterwards and you know, he looked physically and mentally just exhausted by uh, refereeing that match and I think that's what it's like You know, it's a very difficult occasion to manage and referees go into it knowing that they're, they're there to be the scapegoat almost yeah, I had the sense in, in with from your interviews with referees that the match is on the verge of being out of control right from right from the start, from the opening whistle. Yeah, because you get this thing that um, um, I don't know if you get this maybe quite so much in American sports, but you certainly do in, in, in football where um, the game will start and players will maybe think that they're allowed to get away with mm-hmm. one heavy foul against a director, you know, just a just a kind of opener, just a kind of setting the tone. Um, but an old firm game, a tackle like that can can spark off all sorts of things. And so the referees then left the decision, well, do I book somebody now, knowing that there's going to be another dozen challenges like that in the next 10 minutes, or then am I booking everybody? Mm-hmm. Um, or you know, how do I take control of this situation? And it, really, the, the opening five minutes of, a, of, a, of an old firm match for the referee and for the players can set the tone for the rest of it. Um, and it, you know, every every referee is different. Some will, will let something go and just have a word with the player. Some will make a show of having a discussion. Some will book them. Um, but it's it's a difficult match to manage because um, it, it's so pent up, and players players lose their self control. Players that normally you wouldn't think would be vulnerable to that kind of thing lose their restraint. And I, the other thing I always thought was interesting from from working in that chapter was the view that. What referees fear most is one of the two sides in a game like that running up a 3-4-0 score. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, the other side who's losing at that point, just then completely losing their self-control and just think, well, there's nothing left to lose now. And then the game becomes even more difficult to manage. Um, I've, I've never, I don't really recall seeing that in an old firm game. And I've seen some, some, some 5-1s and some 4-2s and things like that. But that certainly seems to be the view amongst referees that you know, they preferred it if the contest was tight probably because maybe the players were more focused on, on the game in those uh, circumstances. So another chapter that uh, shows the, the pressure surrounding the old firm is the one on the managers. And uh, you focus in particular on Tony Mowbray, the, the Celtic manager who was under fire 
in January 2010 and then was, was fired by the club in March of that year. And you give a picture of, of Mowbray as, as a capable manager and he was successful elsewhere in his career, but he just was not suited for the old firm. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 handling, it's handling the pressure of the, uh, the demands of the job because I go back to what I was saying before about they don't play each other every week, but in effect they are playing each other every week. So any, uh, any setback is um, measured against what the other team are doing. So say, for example, you manage, uh, I don't know, a Tottenham or a Liverpool or a Chelsea or something like that, you know, a big, big club with lots of expectation and, and a worldwide fan base and all the other things, um, you know, two or three defeats is, is a big deal there. Two or three defeats for an old firm manager is crisis and it's catastrophe. You know, the whole, everybody's talking about it, the nation's talking about it, the city's talking about it, um, you know, the other team are ahead. You know, there's no such thing as second place to an extent in the old firm you know, second place is a disaster the old firm because it means the other lot have won and this is what I was talking about earlier on there's no there's no third team coming through to, to win the title so there's no consolation for fans if say if you're a Rangers fan your team hasn't won the title that means Celtic have won the title so that's even worse than say an Aberdeen or a Hearts winning it you know, because you've got the whole local rivalry thing working there and so I think there's the demands on the managers are huge and one of the things that Walter Smith said uh, in his second spell at the club was the greater um, media interest, the greater intensity of the media coverage that he found. And he'd only, must have only been maybe seven or eight years, I can't remember, it's off the top of my head, maybe slightly more than that, years that he was away. So not a huge amount of time. But in that time, there was a you know, uh, much more media coverage of the old firm. Um, and I think that the thing that drew me to all that stuff about Tony, who I found when he was Hibs manager to be uh, a really approachable manager, a lovely guy, easygoing, um, you know, intense, but in a kind of um, in a committed, you know, he's intense about his ideals and intense about what he what he wanted to achieve from the game, but not intense in an aloof way. Uh, and I, I I welcomed him getting the Celtic job because I thought he would still be like that, but very quickly he. And retreated into a kind of defensive posture, and he, almost from the moment that he got the job, he thought people were against him, and he just didn't seem to be able to cope with the with the pressures of that. I mean, there are always setbacks, particularly for a new manager coming in at the start of a season and having to build a new team. I mean, it's difficult. You've got European games very early on; it's tough, and you've got to be tough to get through it. Um, and Tony just seemed to. He just seemed to kind of shrink in front of us a wee bit, and this was a big physical man, big centre half, and he played for the club, mm-hmm. so it wasn't as though he didn't know what he was getting into, um, and he just never seemed comfortable there. Um, and I, I, you're either you've either got the strength of personality to succeed at the old firm, or you don't. Now, Tony did as a player, um, so I was surprised that he didn't as a manager. Um, but if we if we take as a contrast, Neil Lennon, who's, who's the Celtic manager, has now replaced Tony had a big setback when he was in, it, in his caretaker role after Tony left. You know, he lost the Scottish Cup semi-final to a first division team, Ross County, you know, disaster for Celtic. Um, didn't have great European results in his first full season, so started badly. Um, but Neil, Neil was tough and he's hard and he knew what he wanted and he knew the business and he knew what he was doing and he stood up to it all and he coped with it and he dealt with it. 
Um, and I think that, that offers a contrast with, with, with Tony. Um, and you know, we've seen it time and again, managers come to, to, to Glasgow. I think of Paul Le Guin, I think of uh, Liam Brady. You know, big, big names in, in football, just not able to cope with the old firm. Uh, and then you see guys like Sunis and Martin O'Neill, and, and you know even before they come, you know that they're the kind of personality that is going to be able to deal with that. Um, and I always think anybody who kind of is dismissive of Scottish football uh, hasn't worked in it, and particularly if somebody's dismissive of what managers achieve. Because what, what you always hear from people in England is if someone's won the league at Rangers or Celtic, they say, oh, well, of course they've won the league there, you know. It's either Rangers or it's either Celtic. You've got 50-50 chance. But if you've successfully managed Rangers or Celtic, you can go and be a success anywhere. If you've successfully managed a team in England, that doesn't necessarily mean you can cope with, with life at Rangers or Celtic because it's unique. And there's probably only maybe Manchester United in terms of media coverage in England where, where there's the same intensity. So it's, it's it's interesting to see what it does to people. I mean, old firm managers age very quickly in front of you, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you quote uh, Graham Sunis as saying that, that managing Rangers is the toughest job in British football. Mm-hmm. And this is a guy as well who, who was a Liverpool legend. You know, his, the best years of his career have been at Liverpool. And he, he went back to Liverpool. He left Rangers to go to Liverpool and manage there. Um, so you can imagine the expectations of the European Cup winning captain coming back who'd been a success in Scotland and it didn't work for soon as there um, but again he's referring to that that sort of intensity of everything in Glasgow being on top of you all the time uh, and, and, and soon as in, in, in fairness rose to that but it, it damn near killed him I mean he, he he had heart trouble at the time, um, and you know, he says himself now when he looks back, the pressure was getting to him. He he exploded at a tea lady at St Johnson one day. Who did or said something wrong? A famous Scottish football story, um, and you know, that was the that was the pressure. Graham was such a volatile character; he was strong, but um, he was aggressive with it and antagonistic with it. And eventually it became too much for him. And you contrast that with Walter, his, Walter Smith, his assistant, who replaced him. Again, you know, a hard man inside. You know, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of, of, of uh, a telling off from Walter. Um, but much more personable than Graham, much much calmer, much more restrained. Um, and almost in many ways, it's a bit of a one-off in contemporary firm managers because... He managed for, uh, off the top of my head, I think six or seven years, first time around, and then came back and did another sort of four-year stint. Um, I mean, old firm managers tend to last three or four years. So in contrast to uh, the rest of the book, which which presents, and you do this well in, the, in, in your writing, uh, you get a sense of the tension and the anxiety that surrounds the old firm. But, but in contrast to that, the chapter on the police control of the match Mm. seem to have a much calmer tone at least at least in my reading mm. i had the sense that the police were the least nervous about the match of, of anybody involved with the match yeah I'm, I'm glad you say that because that was one of the things that i wanted to get across because the game is is managed almost down to the micro level i mean they can with the, with the camera work that they have on the ground now they can zoom in to what individual supporters are holding in their hands. They can monitor the game to that extent. But the whole thing is planned from from first thing that morning to 
lasting that night. You know, they have a log, they have a plan, and they stick to that. And then they have a debrief afterwards where they'll update it and change it for the next one. Um, I mean, it's one of the slickest policing operations in, I would say, European football. I, mean, I think British police are very good at uh, policing the game. And I think um, the police who deal with the old firm game are probably among the best uh, at coping with a match like that. Um, I mean, there are... I think part of it is, is there's now a sort of cultural acceptance that you don't go along to the football for a scrap. I mean, people don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so that helps. But part of that, again, has come because the games are so well policed, so that kind of element of the game has fallen away. Uh, and, and the fans are very well segregated inside the grounds. Seg- you know, if, if you live in Glasgow, you know which way the Rangers fans go to Ibrox, which way the Celtic fans go to Ibrox, which way they go to Hamden which way they go to Celtic Park. You just, it's just part of the, the knowledge of the fabric of the city. So even on the way to the game, there's segregation. But um, it's just that they're, they're just on top of it. The, their experience, I mean, they have at least four of them a season anyway, so they should be experienced, but they learn from each one. And, um, you know, it's, it's a very it's a very slick operation to the point where they even follow what happens after the match. You know, that mm-hmm. You know, the, the control, the controller of the game will, will pass the the day, the event, whatever you want to call it, pass uh, authority for that over to another commanding officer in another part of the city who's monitoring what's going on in the city, because once the fans spill out, these games invariably kick off at midday so that people can't drink beforehand, so there's plenty of drinking time afterwards, so it then becomes a policing event across the city, uh, which is more difficult, but. Um, it's you know I, I was impressed with the, with, with the, the commanding officer that I, I spoke to for that chapter because um, you know they, they must I guess they must fear something happening at the game and the whole thing spiraling out of control but it doesn't come across in the way that they manage it mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's, it's an impressive piece of it's an impressive piece of police work. Mm-hmm. So I want to pick up with something you just said about uh, that fans fans nowadays don't come to. Uh, an old firm match looking for looking for a fight and yeah. uh, and I want to talk about the fans you you discuss the the supporters of the clubs throughout the book and in my reading I came away with with really two different perspectives of of the fans at an old firm match so so one perspective which you get from the chapter on the police where you talk about uh uh the fans being segregated that the fans present their banners for the police to really censor is this is this going to be allowed <laughs> Uh, at the match, uh, and then that opening chapter in which you describe the fans coming on the ferry and coming on the trains and the buses to the match, and and you describe how fans uh, they keep their scarves tucked under their coats. They they don't want to they don't want to reveal which side they're on, and they don't want to uh, they don't want to spark a confrontation before mm-hmm. before the start of the match. So I had a, a view, and and uh, is is this accurate? That old firm supporters are or have been tamed. Um, I think I think they have been in the same way that all football supporters have been tamed. And okay. There was a there was a culture in the eighties um, in, in British football, in particular, of the, you know, we called it the casual movement, where you know, gangs of supporters from, from clubs would would use matches as a means to meet up and arrange fights. So going to the football was, uh, particularly some clubs, Millwall, Leeds, Rangers, Celtic, Hibs, Aberdeen, all, 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 most clubs had a, some form of casuals, gang members that followed the club. And so 
there was this element of you know, we see a lot of books about it now, for example, reformed casuals talking about their fighting lives. You know, you don't get that anymore. I mean, if, if you hear of, of, of a fight taking place after a match, it's a it's an unusual event. Um, so I think that there is an element of that. Um, I think there's also an element as well of if you want to go to the game and see the game, or, you, or at least you want to go and be part of the occasion. You don't want to go and, and um, you know, get involved in a fight and end up in the clink or something. You know, I, I just I, I think that that culture of fighting has has fallen out of the, of the British game now. I, you know, I do think it's a verbal occasion now. Nobody wants to turn up to the game and turn up to the event and not see it and not get in or, or get chucked out because they've been doing something. They want to, they want to sing and they want to do their stuff, but you know, they want to see the game. They, they want to be there. Um, so I think there is less of a less of an issue about um, you know, any actual violence or anything like that. I mean, that's why I go back to that comment I made before about you know the safest place on, on the day probably being at the match. So in contrast, though, in in the last chapter of the book, and uh, which is set in the clinic near the grounds, and you visit with mm-hmm. the doctors and the nurses and the paramedics who deal with the wounded from an mm-hmm. old firm match. You make clear in this chapter this is still a a bloody yeah. rivalry. It, it, it can happen. I mean, we, we we see probably two or three times a year at least uh, we'll hear stories of um, of somebody being stabbed or attacked uh, while wearing football colours. Um, and one of the reasons that I structured the book in particular the way that I did, and one of the reasons that I talk about that in the way that I did, was because um, you know I feel very strongly that. The football rivalry generates that kind of hostility and that kind of antagonism, and people will be angry enough to fight necessarily. But the west of Scotland, in particular, and Scotland as a whole, uh, it has a drinking problem. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, don't, we don't drink well in this country. We drink too much. We drink. Uh, you know, we're binge drinkers. You know, alcoholism is a problem in this country. Um, and it's that kind of drink fueled aftermath of the game where uh, things like that happen uh, and that's what I was trying to get across in that chapter and I think one of the really interesting things to come out of it because when I go back to that sort of guilty pleasure thing that we were talking about before when the old firm gets blamed for so many sort of social problems in Scotland and gets blamed for um, sustaining sectarianism in Scotland and things like that um, it's interesting that the doctor that I spoke to says that the the, the highest incidence of people attending the uh, accident and emergency after a football match was after a Scotland-France game. Yeah. So it had been played at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, so the people had been drinking all day. It was a bank holiday weekend. Everybody was happy-go-lucky. Everybody was getting drunk. Uh, and that led to the highest number of, of people attending their, their, their A&E after a, a football match rather than an old firm game. And they weren't fighting French fans. You know, they were doing whatever they were doing whilst drunk after the game. So the, the clear point I was trying to make there, and I made it another time after when I'm talking about what happened to, to, to Neil Lennon last season when politicians jumped all over the old firm, is that Scotland's problem with drinking is as much of an issue with any of these things as the game itself. Uh, and that's a problem that we're, we're not... Well, in fairness to the current government, they've, they've tried to do things about it, but we responsible drinking is, is, is not high up the agenda in Scotland at the moment. So you're probably familiar with this this question. I've heard it uh, raised before 
with the old firm. In, in your view, what is what is at the core of the rivalry today? Is it still about religion? Is it about nationalism? Or is it primarily about Celtic and Rangers, about which football club a person supports? Yeah, it's very definitely the latter. Um, I mean, I think there are a lot of other things tied up in it. Mm-hmm. Um, most clearly the religious aspect of it. I mean, there are non-Catholic uh, Celtic fans that are non-Protestant Rangers fans I mean it's not as blunt as that um, but I mean how many of these people for example are practicing Protestants and Catholics hardly any of them and you know the instance of, of people actively uh, taking part in religion is going down all the time I mean, people might still say on their census form well yeah I'm, I'm baptised Catholic or I'm baptized Protestant or whatever, so they'll put that on their on their census form every ten years. But that doesn't mean they're going to church every week. So even even the religious aspect of it is it's kind of um, it's a badge of identity, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, but it, I mean, it used to be, for example, that probably the majority of the Celtic support would be Labour supporting, the majority of the Celtic of the Rangers support would be Conservative and things like that. Um, I mean that's changed. Um, I think there was a time very early on in the club's existence where um, the attachment to Northern Ireland and Ireland maybe wasn't quite as, as, as um, prominent as it is now. Um, you see an awful lot of Union Jacks at Highbridge, you see a lot, an awful lot of tricklers at Celtic Park. Maybe 30, 40 years ago you wouldn't have seen so many as them. I mean, it's fluid, um, but the basics of it are um, Catholic, Protestant, um, and Rangers, Celtic, and I, I think most of the. That's why I go back to that social economic thing that I was talking about before. Um, the, the supporters come from the same backgrounds in the city, so I don't think they're different in any way other than the team that they support, and in the majority of cases, what religion they are. But I think this is a classic football rivalry that has other religious and political uh, affiliations tied up within it, but it's never just quite as simple as everybody You know, that's why I go back again to that remark I made earlier on about judging the support by that most vocal minority that's in it which is probably unfair you mean, how could 50,000, 60,000 people be the same? Of course they can't be um, but the, the, the identity has certain elements of it that are expected and I think this is just a football rivalry that has complications. Um, I don't think it's anything more than that. I mean, I don't think the Catholics and Protestants would be shouting at each other across the street. So I want to turn to uh, Rangers' current financial problems. And at the time we're recording the interview, the, the club is in administration. It is it is deep in debt. It is looking for an owner. And uh, we can say simply that uh, the future is unclear. And uh, you wrote a piece a few weeks ago uh, in which you wrote that that Celtic supporters should not gloat in the uh, the failure of their rivals, but rather they should they should be wishing for Rangers' speedy recovery. Why is that? Would you say that uh, Celtic should hope for for Rangers to come back? Well, I, I, I would qualify that slightly because um, I mean they're perfectly entitled to, of course, they are to, to gloat. That's exactly what supporters do and they're perfectly entitled to enjoy the uh, the discomfort of the great rivals uh, I think the, the piece that I wrote was, was basically reacting to this idea that, that some people, some of the the officials at Celtic were stressing that you know, we don't need Rangers um, I think that's slightly disingenuous, I mean Celtic are a well run club, they're financially stable they're well backed, 
if Rangers were to go out of existence tomorrow, Celtic's existence wouldn't be threatened, but they would be diminished. I mean, these two clubs have grown to the size that they are because of each other. Mm-hmm. The rivalry provides them with competitive, emotional and financial nourishment. If it wasn't for the great rivalry, if it wasn't for these two clubs becoming the, the, the pillars of their two communities, i.e. the Protestant and Catholic communities, then these clubs wouldn't be the size that they are. And that, you know, the phrase the old firm refers to that recognition very early on in, in, in their existences that the directors realised that this rivalry would, would be commercially important to the two clubs. So if you take one of them away, then you're naturally going to affect the other. Now Celtic would survive, but they would be diminished. They would, um, you know, who would they compete against every week? They would have no rival in Scotland. Um, I mean, I, I, one of the, I don't know if this was the piece that you saw, but I, I went to the first game that Celtic played after Rangers had gone into administration, which was a game at uh, Easter Road against Hibs. They won at 5-0. It was a straightforward match. The goal, none of the goals were barely contested. It was a very poor Hibs display. Hibs fans were going home midway through the second half. And Celtic fans spent the whole game singing songs about Rangers. So if you take that competitive element away, you take the one half of the rivalry away, that is going to affect the team that's left behind. Um, and so that was the point that I was trying to make, that um, as much as the two sets of supporters hate each other um, and hate the idea of each other and, and naturally in that kind of overwrought way want the other club to disappear, um, that's counterproductive. Uh, they, 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 they coexist these two teams they, they, they're, they're part of the same whole and I know a lot of the supporters don't like that but, but, but tough, that's the reality of it uh, they need each other to be as big as they want to be I mean if if, if, you, if you want to get better you've got to compete against a, 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 you know, an opponent that's a, that can match you and no one else could match the old firm in Scotland so they need each other um, but I've just been writing a kind of an, an addition to the epilogue for the paperback edition, so they're drawing in um, what, what's happening to Rangers now. And I, I felt the way I ended the, the hardback on, on that sort of last old firm match of that season, that uh, was a very kind of positive ending to that season. Uh, and I felt that that was quite a, a good way to end it because it suggested that. Um, you suggested the game's capable of, of, of good things as, as well as bad things. Mm-hmm. I feel what's happened to Rangers now has kind of moved the two sets of supporters back to their extreme views again. Yeah, um, you know, it's kind of heightened the, the, the antagonism between them again. So you also made a point in that article uh, about the necessity of the old firm for the health of Scottish football as a whole. Yeah, I mean, basically these two clubs fund Scottish football. They're, they're the great economic drivers for the game. Um, and we go right back to the very basics, which are that the two clubs have these vast travelling supports. So the other clubs in Scottish football have grown used to the income that they get from the Rangers and Celtic travelling supports. They make a significant impact on other clubs' finances. Now, obviously, the game has changed in recent times, uh, and there's much more money comes in in television deals and commercial deals and sponsorship. But all of these in Scotland are linked to the old firm. If you take the Sky television deal, for example, which is pretty small beer compared to the one in England, but nonetheless it's significant for the clubs in Scotland, that deal was based upon Sky ensuring that they have four old firm games a season because those are the ones that Sky viewers want to see. 
Um, so Rangers and Celtic bring in most of the broadcast revenue. Uh, all the commercial and sponsorship deals are based on the presence of Rangers and Celtic because they're global brands. They're, they're, the, they're the teams that people like with Scotland have heard of, that know of. So Clydesdale Bank, for example, sponsors of the Premier League, they do that because they know the coverage the game gets in Scotland, but also the coverage that Rangers and Celtic get elsewhere. So Rangers and Celtic prop up Scottish football financially, which clearly irks the other clubs. Uh, although they do understand that that's just the, the economic reality of the situation that they're in. But they also obviously economically support each other. The rivalry generated uh, an income. It became a business proposition almost, uh, which is what the name old firm refers to. And um, these two clubs grew to the size that they did because of each other. Um, they, they provide competitive uh, financial and emotional sustenance for each other, really. Uh, because there's so many people want to see the rivalry, there's so many people involved in the rivalry, uh, and, and it allowed Rangers and Celtic to grow to the point where, in some cases, we can say that they fund Scottish football, on the other hand, we could say that they might suffocate Scottish football because they're so big that I mean, no one else has won the league in 25 years, and no one else looks likely to win the league in the next 25 years. Um, so it's a very difficult situation, I think, for Scottish football to manage, and it's a situation that is... Fluent, fluent and, and, and volatile at the moment because other clubs want to claim some of that broadcast revenue, and they want to uh, they want to take the, the the power away from Rangers and Celtic and sort of rebalance Scottish football. So it'll be interesting to see if that happens. The, the cynic in me thinks that it probably won't. So you talk about the economic benefits of the old firm, but but as I was reading the book. I was looking for other social or even personal benefits from the match. And throughout the book, I found myself thinking, it doesn't seem like anyone enjoys this. <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that because my, my editor, once I delivered the, the sort of first draft of the book, uh, one of the comments that he made having gone through it was, was exactly the same thing. He said, this is very, there's very much a sense that nobody enjoys it. I, I think we have to address that, and I think we have to show that, that people do enjoy the occasion. And I, I made the point, and I'll make it again now, that, that people don't really enjoy it. I mean, if you're a fan of Rangers or Celtic, you don't enjoy the day of an old firm game. You're, you're tense, you're nervous, you're, you're worried. Um, you just don't want to lose and you can't stand the idea of losing. And it goes back again to that sort of you know, the size of Glasgow and everybody um, just in this small, self-contained city. I mean, you work beside fans of the other side all the time, so the rivalry is always present in your workplace or amongst your friends or whatever. Um, and so the occasion, the occasion is almost, I would say, something to be endured. I think that the supporters of the winning team clearly enjoy it afterwards. Um, but I think, as some of the fans make quite clear in, in the fans' chapter, you know, you're, you're almost bouncing off the walls in the morning. You're, you're tense, you're sweaty palms, you can't really eat properly. It's just, it, you know, you, you do enjoy it, but in, in a kind of perverse way. Um, and it's much the same for for the other people involved in it. Obviously, the referee will, will be worried, will be looking forward to it, will be worried about his performance and, and what happens in the game and can they control it. The police will be very clear that, about what they're doing, but obviously in the back of their minds, they'll be worried that, that something happens that they can't control. You, you, as, a, as a journalist, you're going along to the game and you're tense because you, you know it's a big occasion and you want to make sure that you capture it and do it properly. And so everybody involved in the game has that sort of tension because of the kind of occasion that it is. Um, and so I think it's it's right that the book, particularly the fans chapter, reflects that because I, I, you know I think that 
definitely the right way to describe it is that it's, it's something to be endured or, or tolerated even. So we're almost out of time, Richard, uh, but I want to ask about, in, in the last chapter, uh, you, so most of the book is about the match in January 2010. The last chapter yeah. you, you write about um, uh, the 2011 season. And you, you talk about the, um, you know, some of the, the problems that surround the old firm match, that there have been death threats and the fights and evidence of the, the upturn in domestic violence on, on match day. And on the second to last page of the book, you, you quote Rangers manager Walter Smith, and, and he says, I question whether it's all worthwhile. And so I'll put it to you as a, as a native son of Glasgow. Is, is this all worthwhile? Yes, it is. I mean, I, th- I think the danger in any um, in any sort of analysis of the old firm is that you're inevitably drawn to the extreme moments. Um, I mean, people aren't dying all the time. Far from it. People aren't getting injured all the time. Far from it. Um, I, I think what, what we've seen in recent years is, is, is an occasional spike and an occasional radical moment that, that, that obviously we don't want to see, and it's right that we should be aware that you know, these things have the potential to happen. But I think in general, I mean, these teams meet each other at least four times a season and they've been doing it for uh, you know, since 1888. So I, I don't think we should we should judge the, the, the rivalry and the worth of it by the worst moments, um, nor should we judge it by the best moments. I think we should look at it and say that this is a unique moment in football. These are two big clubs uh, and that's something to be celebrated. Uh, but at the same time, we should recognise that the sectarian language that has been used, the the, uh, the antagonism that it generates, the intensity of feeling that it generates, when that combines with, with the alcoholism problem in the west of Scotland, that's a volatile mix, and we have to be aware of that, and we have to make sure that that doesn't prevail. But I think my personal view is that it, it's something to be celebrated rather than something to be something to be regretted. And I and I do I do think it's. Um, it's definitely worth the, it's definitely worth the candle, and I think what Walter was maybe expressing was when you see a fellow manager being sent things like that in the post, the, the bullets, the parcel bombs. You think, can this be worth it? But as horrendous as those incidents were, you cannot legislate for the behaviour of individuals who are moved to do something as extreme as that. And I don't think that should reflect on the, the two big supports the two big clubs generate. Um, and, and I think the old firm game is some, it's something to celebrate. I mean, you're on to me talking about it. People in America will know about it. People in Australia know about it. People all over the world talk about it. If I go on holiday somewhere and I say I'm from Glasgow, it's the first thing anyone ever says to me, Rangers or Celtic. <laughs> That's unique. You know, and we shouldn't shy away from that. We shouldn't be we shouldn't be scared of it. We shouldn't um, we shouldn't be disdainful of it. Uh, but nor we should we be blind to the, the darker elements of it. We, we have to accept the whole, and hopefully in some way celebrate and emphasise the good bits, and find a way to make sure that the, the bad bits are suppressed, and, and, and we manage to get play them down and get rid of them. All right. Let me finish by asking on a, on a personal note. So, so your book came out at the same time Rangers goes into administration. I know that you've been you've been writing a lot. You've been on the BBC. You're the, the now the resident expert with your book out on the old firm. Are, are, are you getting tired of the old firm? Um, no, is the short answer to that. Um, it's a question my wife poses to me uh, <laughs> too often. Uh, but there's just something uh, there's just something so 
vibrant and urgent about the whole thing. And you know, I've lived in this city my whole life. I've, I've been aware of the old firm game since I was a young boy, and I know men like my father and, and men in, uh, in their sixties and seventies who still love to watch the old firm game and are still caught up in it all. And I think it's so dramatic and it has a capable capability of being so intense. And, and it, it's it's it renews all the time because there's new players, there's new figures in it, there's new managers, there's new circumstances, there's always something happening and it keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. Um, so no, I don't think I will ever tire of it. I have never tired of it. I think it's endlessly fascinating. It's always changing, it's always evolving. Um, and last year and this year, I think we will come back to look upon as two of the most turbulent years in the history of the old firm. And, and it's been, some of it has been depressing, but it's, it's been it's been enlivening to be in the middle of all that and, and in a sense, to be, in some small way, to be a part of it. Um, you know, this is a great, to me, it's still a great thing. You know, people love sport. In this country, they're obsessed with football. And Rangers and Celtic are as, as big as it gets. And, uh, you know, I, I will always be fascinated by it and I will always be, uh, I will always be interested in it. You've been listening to an interview with Richard Wilson about his book, Inside the Divide, One City, Two Teams, The Old Firm, published by Canonsgate in 2012. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from history to language. If you like what you heard here, please friend New Books and Sports on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you can give us feedback and find daily links to quality, shorter sports writing. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week.